Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and part one of the Oak Island Mystery. It's been called a lot of things, from the Oak Island Money Pit to the Oak Island Mystery and in between, but it has drawn worldwide attention as a riveting and lasting mystery, complete with a curse and legends that go back over 400 years. The old newspaper stories, when journalists were more concerned about getting the real story and less about trying to divide people along lines of political thought, are the best for getting to what happened. We'll be covering everything from newspaper stories, to books, to videos, to research experts, to skeptics, as we go forward. The History Channel has been running an ongoing series regarding efforts to solve the mystery of the Oak Island Money Pit, those efforts being committed by two brothers, Rick and Marty Legina, from Michigan, who are trying to unlock the secret of what they call the curse of the Oak Island Money Pit and they do a pretty good job educating viewers regarding the modern attempts at searching the money pit at its devious, dangerous, and, yes, deadly twists. They are finding artifacts, though not treasure, and will share the fruits of their efforts later. Some things have been found through the years, but definitely no treasure in terms of coins, only historical treasure, and nothing worth the six lives that have been lost in the search thus far. All I knew about Oak Island at the point of entering this story was that it is a dangerous sea pole on an island in Nova Scotia that has been rumored to have been the hiding place for Captain Kidd's booty and that men have spent fortunes as well as lost lives trying to locate the treasure which many believe lays at the bottom of a 130-foot sinkhole. The problem is that the hole has proven to be booby-trapped with both fresh and saltwater seeps at various levels either booby-trapped by nature or by some ingenious device created by man to prevent anyone without a specific knowledge or key from getting to the bottom. All kinds of engineering questions have gone unanswered regarding who designed it, why they built it, and why they engineered it to become a death trap if they did. Surely, one reasons, if it were a pirate going to all these elaborate means, as you'll soon see, to hide a treasure... He would not make it impossible to reclaim it when he needed it. And this is the nexus of the story, at least from my perspective. It wasn't long after I dived into the Oak Island mystery that I began to see what a huge story it has become. Full of twists and turns and heartbreaks, long on legend and speculation, and wrapped up in a curse that promises to take at least one more life from those who still dare to seek the treasure. There are some strange things still to be learned about Oak Island, aside from the money pit. There's also a formation of boulders called Nolan's Cross, and that cross has a theory on it. And there's a number of triangle-shaped ambiguities throughout Oak Island, arousing curiosity among some historians and researchers that Oak Island and the Masons may have a very strange and old attachment. There are Masonic symbols and hints scattered throughout the story of Oak Island, Lastly, there's been a search or activity on a beach at a place called Smith's Cove. Various objects, including non-native coconut fiber, have been found there, and found at the bottom of the original hole. More recent archaeological discoveries in the Smith's Cove area have included an allegedly pre-15th century lead cross and various wooden earthworks. It begins to appear that this island was known and used as far back as the 1400s, and maybe earlier. Maybe as an early settlement, maybe as a watering hole for voyagers and discoverers. 
maybe as a hiding place for Masonic treasure of unknown value. That story has yet to be discovered. Keep in mind that the first European settlement in New England didn't take root until the early 1600s, although that area of North America, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Canada, was traveled and settled in the 15th to 16th centuries, and prior to that, was known by all European fishermen, including the Vikings, as a fantastic place for cod fishermen. More than 50 books have been published recounting the island's history and exploring competing theories. Several works of fiction have also been based upon the Money Pit, including The Money Pit, The Money Pit Mystery, Riptide, The Hand of Robin Squires, and Betrayed, The Legend of Oak Island, and those are just a few. Wild theories have been circulating for years about the nature of the artifacts present on or below Oak Island. Theories that range from pirate treasure to hidden Shakespearean manuscripts, to Marie Antoinette's jewels, to the Holy Grail, and even the Ark of the Covenant, with the Grail and the Ark having been buried there by the Knights Templar. And that's probably just what those are, wild theories. There is a curse which is said to have originated more than a century ago, and states that seven men will die in the search for the treasure before it's found. To date, six men have died in their efforts to find it. And now, our story's history. The only real place to begin if you want to get a full understanding of what has created all this turmoil and mystery that we know as Oak Island. The 140-acre, privately-owned Oak Island is connected by a gated causeway to the shore of Nova Scotia along the Atlantic coast of Canada, and it's one of over 350 islands that dot the tranquil Mahone Bay. It was connected to mainland Nova Scotia by a causeway bridge back in the 60s, a bridge built sturdily enough to handle heavy construction equipment as treasure seekers started to pour onto the island. The story of Oak Island's money pit begins in the summer of 1795, when a teenager named Daniel McGinnis, who lived on the shore of Nova Scotia, and often looked out on uninhabited Oak Island, wondering what was over there, decided to get in a boat and cross the water from his parents' house. According to author Lee Lamb, McGinnis went across one day to investigate and noticed a peculiar circular depression measuring approximately 13 feet in diameter on the island's forest floor. He also noticed that a number of oak trees had been removed from the area surrounding the depression, those apparently having been removed many years ago. Maybe shoring needed for a mine? In addition to this, he saw that a block and tackle hung from a severed tree limb which was positioned directly above the shallow hole. Now we place ourselves in his shoes and try to add all this up. This is an uninhabited island. Someone dug a hole 13 feet in diameter. They also removed a number of oak trees. To where? They also set up a block and tackle above the hole. Using the block and tackle, they could raise or lower workmen with fresh cut timber which could be used to shore up the walls of a hole. But who would want to build a mine shaft, and why? Daniel came back the next day with two of his friends, John Smith and Anthony Vaughn, and they brought shovels. Together, they decided they wanted to know. And while they dug, they no doubt shared what they knew about some of the pirates that had frequented these waters less than 100 years ago, during the golden age of piracy, a time that mainly spanned the years between 1690 and 1730. There was even a legend that Captain Kidd had claimed to have buried treasure in this area before his capture in 1699. Almost from the start, the boys' shovels were quickly striking rock 
as they dug into the topsoil, and they found that a layer of flagstone had been laid across the surface of the opening. They hurriedly removed the flagstone and found only more dirt floor. They kept digging, following the walls of the existing depression, and found that as they dug, the pit was narrowing, narrowing down to about seven feet in diameter. And now they could see the marks of pickaxes on the old clay walls. Had these been left by pirate laborers who had buried treasure here? By now they were seeing visions of doubloons and jewels overflowing from wooden chests. At the depth of ten feet, the boys were still digging, and the walls of the hole now passed far above their heads to the surface. Although the story doesn't make it clear, they dug either one or two men at a time, always making sure they had a way out, and always with someone to keep watch to see if anyone was coming by boat. It was at this level, at ten feet, that they discovered a layer of rotting timbers which spanned the width of the hole, forming a wooden platform, so that they were standing now on wood and not dirt. And that wood, as you might expect, was oak. Actually, the ends of the timbers had been driven into the sides of the walls, apparently to provide stability and firmly anchor the structure. Someone had had a plan. But what? A well? When they reached the oak timbers and tapped on the timber with their shovels, a hollow sound rang back to them, indicating that there was air beneath the timbers. That really got them excited, because from this point, they had possibly just to dig below the wood to find the treasure. But when they removed the wood, there was about a foot of space, and then more dirt. That they were the first to dig here in some time was obvious. If anyone had gone before, the wood would have been dug through and destroyed. But the timbers had been in place, unbothered, only rotting with age. Why this elaborate means of construction, they wondered. To what purpose was all this work done? Maybe as a ruse to discourage unwelcome finders? That was the only answer possible. More days of digging brought them to 20 feet below the surface and another rotting wood floor. They pulled away the rotting timbers hoping to find anything, something. But there was about a foot of airspace and more dirt. At that point, exhausted and disappointed, the boys gave up the dig, for a few weeks anyway. Then they returned and dug down to 30 feet, at which point a third layer of timbers, about a foot of empty space, and more dirt. Why the foot of empty space? Now they were thinking, no doubt the dirt had settled in as many years as it was since this was filled in. This was crazy. They decided to give it up. But the eldest of the three boys, John Smith, wasn't ready to give up the possibility that something lay down there. And in time, he purchased the lot on which the pit was located. In a few years, the story got out there and people's curiosities were being spiked. The boys were looking for someone with a little more experience to help them with the search. And in 1803, they brought a man named Simeon Linz into the party. Linz was the grandson of a pioneering family that had come to Nova Scotia from Ireland. Linz was a relative of Anthony Vaughan, one of those three young men, and by joining them gave them a member and confidant who was related, which was very important to them from the perspective of trust. To assist in the adventure, Linz enlisted the help of Colonel Robert Archibald, Captain David Archibald, and Sheriff Thomas Harris. Together, they formed the Onslow Company, its sole purpose being to recover the Oak Island treasure. By the summer of 1804, 
Nine years now since Daniel had discovered the pit, the team returned to the pit with high hopes of reaching and uncovering buried treasure. They started by removing backfill from the boys' excavation, then dug down to 25 feet and then 30 feet, when one of the shovels hit a solid object. That turned out to be another wood floor at 30 feet, with a twist thrown in. There were remnants of charcoal scattered around the platform this time. Not deterred, the hard-working adventurers dug down to 40 feet, only to find another platform of wood timbers. But this time the timbers were filled with a sap-like substance, almost as if they were being sealed to be watertight. There had to be something of value down there. They dug more until they reached 50 feet, at which point they were surprised to find another floor of timbers, but covered this time with fibers of coconut shells. This must have driven them mad with wonder and anticipation. Coconuts only grew in tropical climates, where pirates frequented, and coconut shell fibers were used in bulk to secure and protect valuable cargo from ships that traded or raided in the Caribbean. They were now at 60 feet. Days and weeks of digging followed, uncovering two more levels of wood planking until they reached 90 feet below the surface. Layers of oak were covered with layers of spruce until they reached 90 feet below the surface. Here they made a significant discovery, a large square-cut stone tablet. On the face of the heavy stone was an inscription consisting of strange symbols. Each character of the strange text contained a mixture of arrows, lines, and dots, and triangles. It was a huge slab, and the crew had it hoisted to the surface for examination. But it would be nearly 60 years that the code was finally broken. Nobody could understand it. And during that time, the stone served, if one rumor is true, as a fireback in one of the men's fireplaces. Or, in another story, it served as a doorstep in front of a Halifax bookbinder shop. It appears that sometime in the 1860s, a Dalhousie University professor of languages named James Lecce was able to successfully decode the tablet's inscription, in the same manner as was employed in Edgar Allan's story, The Gold Bug, which, by the way, still remains on her to-do list at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, Lecce used a simple substitution cipher and came up with the words, Forty feet below, two million pounds are buried. Although the men had no idea back in 1805 what the tablet had said, still it was a mighty strange rock, and it had been laid 90 feet down to deliver a message. And the only message they took out of that was to keep digging. At 98 feet, they hit another wood platform, right, with the predictable airspace and dirt beneath. That was toward the end of a long and hard day of digging. Before leaving, one of the men took his crowbar and pried two of the log planks apart in the floor to see if he could see anything below with his lamp and saw nothing. When they got to the top, they retired for the day. When they returned to the site the next day, the hole had filled with water. Their worst dream come true. They tried desperately to lower the water level with buckets, but to no avail, the hole stayed full. Colonel Robert Archibald now saw this as a hopeless situation and seized work at the site. That autumn, they hired a man named Mosher, who had a mechanical pump, to clear the well, and for a time, it worked. The water level sank to the 90-foot depth mark, 
close to where they'd been digging, but then the pump gave out, leaving them back at square one and leaving the hole to fill with water. The company they had formed was nearly out of money, but still they kept trying new things. They dug another pit parallel to the original one, hoping they could bypass whatever snares the first one had been designed to offer, if in fact they were designed. But by the time they reached 12 feet, that pit was filled with water. The Onslow Company was done, finished, kaput, out of money. That was 1805, and it would be nearly 40 years before anyone else was ready to pick up a pick and shovel. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now we return to our show in progress. It was now 1845, and Anthony Vaughn, one of the three boys who had done the original digging, still wasn't ready to quit. He started a company called the Truro Company, and together with John Gamel, Adams Tupper, Robert Creelman Esquire, Jotham McCulley, and James Pitt Blotto, the group spent three years raising capital for the work ahead, and planning and by the summer of 1849, they were hard at work at the site of the hole, removing water from the original pit. It took two weeks to make it to 86 feet. There were no leaks up to this point, and they were excited about finally getting to the bottom, or what they hoped was the bottom. But on the next day, the water surface had returned to 60 feet. Undeterred, they had fashioned a hand-operated auger bit that could be mounted directly above the pit, and used to bore down hundreds of feet. Its purpose was to pick up whatever solid dirt, rock sediment, artifacts, coins, whatever, and transport it back to the surface for a clean-out before being sent down for another trip. They sent the auger down until it reached 98 feet, where, the men knew, the auger would come in contact with a six-inch layer of rotted spruce logs that the original builders had laid in at that level. It went through the spruce, and for one foot, there was no contact with anything. That was typical with what the original dig had found. There was always an empty pocket below each floor because the dirt had settled that much throughout the years. Now they expected another nine feet of dirt to the next platform. But no. First they went through four more inches of oak, six more inches of spruce, then seven feet of clay. That was definitely different. Maybe this was the location of the treasure for which they'd been seeking. Now when the auger came up, the men watched intently as the auger's contents were emptied carefully into trays where it could be picked through. Something was glittering on the tray. To their amazement, the men found three small links of gold chain. The auger was sent down next to 114 feet, where it hit another platform of timbers. No gold came up in this load but they did bring up a pile of coconut fibers, convincing the searchers that there was indeed a treasure lying down there. In the midst of all this, there was obviously anxiety, greed, and now suspicion, becoming factors that the men had hoped they wouldn't have to deal with. These were hard times for many, and although these men were all investors in this company to some degree, greed may have overcome one of them. During the fourth drilling, as the story goes, at least two crew members saw one of the partners, James Pitblado, slip something into his pocket. And they didn't challenge him. Soon after, he left the island and relinquished all ties to the Truro Company. 
but he didn't remain unheard of for long, and his actions were to prove beyond a doubt that he had found something of value. As he petitioned the local government for the right to search himself, but they only went as far as giving him the right to search ungranted and unoccupied lands, lands which did not include the money pit. He was able to convince local lawyer and businessman Charles Dixon Archibald to join him, and they made an attempt to purchase the lot containing the pit, but their, but their attempt was rejected. They continued with plans to wrestle ownership and rights, but those plans finally fell apart, leaving Archibald headed for the remainder of his life to England, and Pit Blotto disappearing into the Vale of Time. The men of the Truro Company went back to work in 1850 with yet another plan. To dig a parallel pit to 109 feet, followed by a horizontal tunnel, which they planned on connecting with the treasure pit. Although it proved a similar failure to earlier efforts, it did provide a valuable learning experience. They discovered, the Truro, the Truro Company discovered, that it was salt water which was filling the pits, not fresh, as they had previously thought. But from where was that coming? The water level in there was rising and falling with the tide. They started looking beyond the pits, out to the beaches, and they discovered that a southern portion of the island was actually, and here's a stumper, man-made. This was called Smith's Cove. So they started building a temporary rock dam to see if they could divert water from Smith's Cove, which they were sure was the source of the seawater which was clogging the pit. After completing a watertight rock wall, during which time the men found remnants of a previous dam and five vents which led water from the cove, they thought, to the pit a device which seemed to them to have been the ultimate booby trap for the money pit. So, and if we're not jumping too fast, there was the key to reclaiming the treasure. If you're Captain Kidd, or this new group, build the dam, keep the salt water out of the cove, and you stop the water flow into the pit, send some men in with shovels, set up a block and tackle, and bada-bing, treasure chest back in hand. The five feeder shafts all led to one. Maybe all this was easier than they'd thought. Block that one, and you should be in business, barring any unforeseen problems. So they blocked it with wood pilings, and then they began pumping like crazy. They thought for sure they'd located the trick to the water flow. They'd built the dam, and they'd blocked the vent. But it didn't prove so easy. The water level in the shaft did not go down. The Trio Company had hit bottom, financially, spiritually, and literally, and come up with almost nothing. Broke, busted, and disgusted, they broke up in 1851. Next in line for a try at the money pit was the Oak Island Association, formed in the spring of 1861, which accomplished collapsing all the timber that had been put in place below 30 feet to support the original money pit walls. If that wasn't bad enough... Following that, a boiler explosion occurred which killed one worker and injured others. This was the first of the fatalities which now comprised the Oak Island Curse, which says that seven men will die trying to conquer the Oak Island money pit. Lots of treasure hunters and newspaper articles appeared between 1861 and 1895 when it was announced that any treasure found on Oak Island would become the property of the Queen of England. Maybe this was done to stop the frantic excavations. Maybe it was hoped that all this madness would end. But two years later, the curse claimed a second man who was working deep in one of the holes 
and was being pulled up toward the top when the pulley system failed, sending him 100 feet down to his death. In 1897, an auger sent down to recover loose debris came up with, of all things, a piece of parchment. How it survived its watery existence isn't explained, but it was discovered and opened at the place where all debris was now being sent for examination, the courthouse in Amherst, Nova Scotia. A Dr. A. E. Porter apparently opened the curled parchment, which was less than half an inch long, and discovered the letters V.I., clearly visible in what appears to be Elizabethan-style script. Later, the piece was inspected by Harvard University specialists who verified its authenticity. Something else came up in that excavation that wasn't reported at the time, traces of gold sediment on the auger, which apparently never made it to the courthouse because there were only traces on the auger. As it turned out, drill operator William Chappell had seen them, but didn't say anything about it until 1931. His reasons never given. Also in 1898, the treasure hunters went to work on trying to discover how salt water was getting into the pits, and they poured large amounts of colored dye into one of them, expecting to find the dye seeping out at Smith's Cove. But no, instead it was found at different points around Oak Island. This led to the belief that a series of labyrinths were located beneath Oak Island that were interconnected. The theory that Captain Kidd buried treasure on Oak Island really gets blown out of the water when you begin to look at the complexity of some of the things that have been discovered beyond what they call the money pit itself. The best example I can give you is the beach at Smith's Cove, which is located about 500 feet, maybe one and a half football fields away from the money pit. We glossed over it earlier as being thought of as the source for the flood water that fills the money pit. Flood water provided by complex venting that connects the cove with the money pit. And remember that someone built Smith's Cove. Yes, built it. Digging deeper, we find that the original clay of the cove had been dug away, and in its place lay round beach stones, small ones, covered by four or five inches of dead eel grass, which was covered by coconut fiber two inches thick, then finally the sand of the beach. Five box drains had been installed beneath all this, all these leading to one tunnel that did merge with the money pit. Apparently, the design was such that the filtering action of the coconut fiber and the seagrass would ensure that the drains would never be clogged by sand or gravel from the beach, and apparently that worked. So what you have here is a man-made system designed to keep a 125-foot-deep hand-dug hole full of seawater. And no little job, worthy of an Army Corps of Engineers. And there were skids found in this bay, meaning larger vessels could be pulled in close for work, onloading, offloading, the kind of work that would take too long for skiffs running back and forth from the larger ship to do. Whoever planned this operation had already purchased the materials, including the coconut fibers. They had the manpower, and they had the time to pull it off. Definitely not a single pirate whose major source of livelihood was raiding ships in the Caribbean and elsewhere. But the question keeps coming up, why go to such lengths to keep a 125-foot hole filled with seawater? If you were the commander of the British or French forces in that region, and the two were constantly at each other's throats, what would you do with the treasure you were trying to hide? There was a seven-week siege upon nearby French-held Fort Louisburg in 1758. 
And so, some theorize that somehow the French managed to ship whatever treasure they had out and past the British ships guarding the entrance. But if so, why not head for larger French garrisons, like Montreal? Why stop at a little island not far from Fort Louisburg and begin excavating a beach with a devious plan to create a death trap above all your treasure, which you plan to leave behind for whoever can reach it? Another story. Many believe that the Freemasons are the incarnation of the Knights Templar, and no one doubts the fact that the Templars had amassed a great fortune up until 1307, when a jealous French king who happened to be heavily indebted to the Templars decided to break up the organization with the help of the pontiff by imprisoning their leaders and purging all the Templars they could find. The Knights Templar, according to theory, went underground, changing their name to the Masons, who we know to be the Freemasons, and all their financing and projects were covered then in a cloak of secrecy. The Masons no doubt owned fleets that ranged the known world, and no doubt the best mariners money could buy. They also very likely had access to maps and charts from early explorers and fishermen, and the vastly unexplored eastern coast of North America might have looked like a good place to stash some treasure. They had the money, the fleet, the treasure, including religious artifacts, and the know-how. It is doubtful, however, that they would have left a stone with a cipher code which translated to English and which indicated that a treasure of two million pounds lay ninety feet below. Of course, it's hard to believe anyone would do that. And that's if that story and stone can be regarded as true. You begin to see just how many parts this Oak Island story has and how this story captures the imagination and leaves you asking how, what, why, when, and who. Over the coming years, things will be heating up for Oak Island, and we'll cover these stories as we go forward in coming episodes. Some of the stories? A young Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes interested and throws in his support. Errol Flynn and John Wayne become investors. William Chappell, remember the auger operator who found the traces of gold? Starts digging in 1931 and comes up with some pretty interesting finds, beginning with a 250-year-old axe and miner's pick. Another story, a well-financed steel exec named Gilbert Hedden finds serious evidence of old mining attempts around the island, very old. And the story of the family Restall's expedition of the 1960s, which ended in tragedy. Then there were Robert Dunfield's efforts and the building of a causeway to allow heavy equipment. Then the story of a very famous Oak Island name, Blankenship, as he formed the Triton Alliance with a business partner. Then in 1982, famous skeptic Joe Nickel begins a study of a still ongoing report on Oak Island's mystery, a study which admits that something strange has been going on at Oak Island, which is something strange to hear from Joe Nickel, and that the island and the artifacts contain allegories to the island being a Masonic vault of some type. And there's at least a shred of evidence to support any one or all of those theories, but it all combines to make part two next week a very interesting episode for all our listeners. The brothers Lagina have uncovered over 600 artifacts from a number of digs around the island, from a copy of a 1647 French map to a Roman sword, which, by the way, appears very similar to the one discovered in the Roman settlement we call Terra Calalis that was discovered outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And that interview is available at 1001 Heroes and 1001 History's Best Storytellers, which is our interview archive show. 
that sword appears similar to this one, that being a ceremonial sword. And beyond that, the discovery of a human foot, and later, a body. The discovery of Portuguese carvings, and much more. It looks more and more like Oak Island is truly a mystery. It may not be a mystery that hides a pirate treasure, but it undoubtedly holds some kind of an historic treasure. And one of these days soon, it just might be found. Much more to come on this story. Meanwhile, I suggest you check out past episodes of the History Channel's The Curse of Oak Island to get caught up on some of the Legina Brothers' finds. Meanwhile, we'll try to get to the bottom of the Oak Island story, which truly is one of the biggest unsolved mysteries of North America. And here are a few recent reviews from our listeners to share with you. The first one, great story, five stars. I've heard and seen the story of the USS Johnston on YouTube, but you really did a great job. The heroism and bravery that day of the American naval officers and sailors is unbelievable. The way you tell their story should be told in history classrooms around the U.S. Good job. That one from Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great, five stars. Stories are fantastic. Narrator is excellent. That one from Brian Jets, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Tide is one of my top three, five stars. It's Tide as being one of my top three podcasts. It's up there with Twilight Histories and Lorehammer. John is an amazing podcaster, and I hope he continues to do his amazing podcast. I especially like the stuff about space aliens. That one from MPR, Apple, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Lost Dutchman, five stars. Top Notch, that one from Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Surprised and Thrilled, five stars. Love this show. Very accurate and great voice for storytelling. Sounds like listening to an old friend. That one from Chris Goodson, Charlotte, North Carolina. That's Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Great Listening, five stars. Great podcast. Look forward to listening to every new release. Five stars for sure. That one from 4099SES, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. We appreciate it very, very much. Just to update you for 2020, our very popular show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, now has a spinoff which is becoming just as popular called 1001 Greatest Love Stories. And really, you could call it Classic Short Stories and Tales 2 because it contains a mix of hand-picked stories, stories that I pick, these stories only being a little bit different because we've added a few more women writers, and we generally stick with themes that involve home, hearth, humor, and sometimes mystery. We'd appreciate you giving that show a try. I think you'll enjoy it very much. At any rate, everyone stay safe. We'll be back next week with a packed episode. Just wanted to give you some history this week so you'd understand what the Oak Island mystery is all about. And very importantly, if you'd like to comment on Oak Island, we'd appreciate your comments at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. And we have a group there as well. You're always invited to join the group. Hope to hear from you. We'll be back soon.